Well, thank you for joining us again for our survey of the Old Testament. We've been discussing the, the major periods of Old Testament history. We've uh, learned about creation and the patriarchs and Exodus and the conquest. And now this morning, we are on Judges. Very good. Uh, th this period is, is one of the most interesting times in Old Testament history. The, the book of Judges includes much that would be culturally unacceptable today, and, and sometimes for good reason, as we'll see, just because the Bible mentions an event doesn't mean it necessarily approves of that event. Uh, but the book of Judges is God's word to us. Paul writes uh, with mainly the Old Testament scriptures in mind in, in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So the, the book of Judges is designed to train us in righteousness. It, it has a message that we need to hear. So we'll be reading a good bit of, of text this morning just to get acquainted with this book. But first, let's ask the Lord that He would enable us to hear it. Oh God, most of all, we want to see you. And Lord, we thank you that you can be seen on the pages of your word. Lord, this is, this is the unfolding story about you. Lord, this is your unveiling, your disclosure. So would you be pleased to show us more this morning, God? We want, we want to know you better because we want to worship you better. So, Lord, visit us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the period of the Judges includes not only the book of Judges itself, but also the small book of Ruth. And, and we'll see that Ruth ends uh, kind of leaning over and peering into the next major time of Old Testament history, that of kingdom. In, in one sense, the, the book of Judges is an apologetic, a defense of the Davidic kingdom. This author is collecting together stories because he wants to show how desperately these people need a king. And that's how he concludes the book in, in the very last chapter, 21, verse 25. He says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own Eyes. He, he wants us to see the moral confusion, the disarray, the lack of leadership. In fact, if you want to read the, one of the most horrific stories in the Bible, you just look at Judges 19 because that, that chapter demonstrates the mess that comes when there is no righteous leader in the land. But it would be mistaken to view this book just as some kind of political propaganda, like a, like a pamphlet that's distributed in a presidential campaign. No, something much more significant is happening here, something much deeper. Because in this book, God is revealing himself as the savior of his people. This, this book isn't just about how we need King David to come. It's about how we need King Jesus to come. And we'll We'll see that. Turn to uh, Judges chapter 1. There's the first five books, and then there's the book of Joshua, 
and then Judges. Chapter 1 begins with the, the second wave of the conquest into the land of Canaan. Uh, and this is, the, this is the time after the death of Joshua. And verse 1 begins with Israel asking the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Now, this notion of conquest is one that is frowned upon in our postmodern, postcolonial, postimperial, post everything age. A modern reader uh, would look at the beginning of the book of Judges and find something very repulsive about Israel occupying Canaanite territory with military force. Uh, they might compare this to the kind of the European takeover of, of Native American lands. Uh, but here, like whenever we read the Bible, we must come to it placing ourselves under the Word, not, not standing as critics above the Word. The, the book of Judges is not here to be judged. It's here to judge us. We, we need to have our presuppositions informed by what God has spoken to us. And, and Canaan, if you remember from a few weeks ago, is the land of promise. God is bringing His people into His place under His rule, and this is His place for them. God who owns the world and everything in it, remember Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He had given this land to Abraham and his descendants over 400 years prior to this. So, from God's perspective, which is the only perspective that ultimately matters, uh, these Canaanite people, they're, they're like enemy occupants in the land that rightfully belongs to Israel. They're much more like terrorists than innocent natives. And at this point, the Bible has already made clear the wickedness of these people. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 9 says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. So these are the things that these people would do. Burns his son or daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead... For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. And in fact, God emphasizes that it's not because Israel is so good that they're getting this land, but because the Canaanites are so bad. Deuteronomy 9 verse 4, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. So the conquest was an execution of God's 
holy justice. This is the way the Bible views this. Now, of course, the author of Judges isn't interested here in defending the conquest. What, what he wants us to see is Israel's failure to accomplish the mission in the way that God had commanded. Look, chapter 1, verse 21. The Benjamites, however, failed to dislodge the Jebusites. Verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan or Tanakh or Dor or Ibleam or Megiddo and the surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. Verse 29. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer. Verse 30, neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron or Nahal. Verse 31, nor did Asher drive out those living in Akko or Sidon or Alab or Akzib or Hela or Aphek or Rehob. Verse 33, neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beth Shemash or Beth Anath. The, the author wants to overwhelm us with their failure. And, and, and the way that this is presented isn't that Israel did their best effort, but at the end of the day, the Canaanites were just too strong. No, God had commanded them to do this, and He had given to them everything they needed to accomplish the task. They had God's direction in verse 1, His assurance of success in verse 2, His power in verse 4, and the promise of his presence in verse 19, and yet none but the tribe of Judah drove out the enemies from their land. This isn't a you win some, you lose some issue. It's not akin to the New Orleans Saints having a bad day. This should be framed in terms of disobedience and covenant infidelity. Because this is what God had commanded in Deuteronomy 7. This is Deuteronomy's second law because this is Israel right at the, uh, the territory of the promised land about to go in. And God is reminding them what He has commanded them. He says, when the Lord, your God, brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites... Seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your son, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And so God describes their failure as it is, disobedience. Look at Judges chapter 2, verse 1. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacchum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. It's what we just read. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? 
So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. And the rest of the book of Judges is the fallout of this covenant faithlessness. One author notes, Nowhere in the Old Testament is the result of disobedience so starkly reflected. Now that might be a little overstated because certainly the the book of Kings or the, the beginning chapters of Genesis have much to say about the consequences of disobedience. But but the point should be taken. Judges is a demonstration of the mess that comes when we fail to honor the Lord. Throughout the book, it doesn't get better, only worse. It would be appropriate for us to take a moment and consider whether or not we have been obedient to the Lord. This isn't just an intellectual study of the periods of of Old Testament scriptures. Uh, No, the, the Old Testament is designed to train us in righteousness, to lead us into an increasing appreciation of the gospel, to to call us to greater faithfulness to the Lord. Are, Are we practicing sin? Doing things we know to be wrong and yet being unconcerned about it? Are we aware of the potential devastation that this could have for our lives and for our spiritual health? If the Lord is bringing something to mind, then the message of Judges is clear. Repent and run to the God who saves. How many of you would identify yourself as having obsessive-compulsive disorder? A few of you. How many of you would your friends and family identify you as having OCD? Well, well, for the OCD neat freaks out there, you'll love the book of Judges because it has this nice pattern that repeats itself over and over again, what we might call the Judges cycle. And, and this cycle happens at least 12 times in this book. The author doesn't want us to just recognize that and say, oh, cool pattern. He, he wants us to feel the monotony of it. There's a humorous television show called Monk about a, a detective who has an OCD problem and has all these weird behavior quirks because of it, but, but he's really good at solving murder cases because of his close attention to detail. And in, in one of the episodes, Mr. Adrian Monk is on his very first ever plane ride, which is, you know, has its own complications because he's terrified of this and all that. But he ends up sitting next to this little girl on the plane who pulls out the Pete and repeat joke on him. You familiar with this? Pete and repeat were sitting on a fence. Pete fell off. So who was left? And the answer is repeat. And then it starts over again. Pete and repeat were sitting on the fence. Pete fell off. Who was left? Repeat. Now, because of Monk's OCD problem, he feels that he has to answer the question every time it's asked. You know, he can't not respond when it's, when it's raised to him. So Monk is sitting there in his misery as again and again, the little girl asks him, Pete and repeat were sitting on the fence. Pete fell off. Who was left? And he says, 
repeat, and it just happens again and again. And the author wants us to see that Israel is locked into this cycle. It's like every time they get to the end, they have to say, repeat. And this cycle begins with Israel forgetting the Lord and serving Baal. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. And this, this inescapable temptation to worship Baal is presented as the direct result of the failure to drive out the remaining Canaanite people. Dale Ralph Davis writes, Remaining Canaanites would not be so much a military threat as a spiritual cancer. That's why Israel was to eliminate the Canaanites and other ites. That's why Israel was to wreck and demolish all their worship centers, every St. Baal on the Hill Shrine and Our Lady of Harvest Chapel. So our writers, they did not possess rings with spiritual emergency. It's the preacher's accusation of God's people for covenant failure. They are like a surgeon who removes only part of the cancer because even cancer has a right to grow and find fulfillment. Tolerance and suicide are congenial bedfellows. What began as toleration became apostasy. What seemed so reasonable proved lethal. Living with Canaanites led to worshiping with Canaanites. Tolerate Baal's people and sooner or later you bow at Baal's altar. Now, in our situation today, we, we might not understand why it would be such a big temptation to worship Baal. I mean, maybe you're feeling, you know, I, I just don't have any urges to bow down to a, a wooden statue of a fertility god. <laughs> But if, if we put this in the perspective of the time, I think we can see how attractive this was and how it's not very different from our own sinful appetites. Most of us don't grow our own food, and normally what's available at Walmart isn't determined by the weather or the temperament of the land. But this was a very agricultural society, and, and they were at the mercy of their crops. And Baal happened to be the god who was notorious for making your land fruitful. So serve Baal, and your crops will grow, and your livestock will be healthy, and maybe your, your wife will bear you strong children to work in the field and continue the family line. You see, this is the Old Testament version of the prosperity gospel. And on top of this, Baal had a wife named Ashtoreth. And the fertility of the land was very much connected to the sexual relationship between Baal and his woman. And, and now for the Canaanites, this wasn't a spectator sport. You could, you could encourage Mr. and Mrs. Baal to hook up and make the land fruitful by attending one of their, their midweek services and participating in the, in the sacred prostitution there. And when the choice is between this 
and the potluck dinner at the Baptist church down the road, you can see why Israel might be tempted to worship Baal. Throughout the Bible, there is this connection between the stomach and sexual sin and idolatry. And, and Baal worship was the epicenter of these. And whenever God's people would forget him and follow another, he would respond with merciful opposition to them. Chapter 2, verse 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. They were in terrible distress. So these nations, while acting with their own evil motives and the selfish desires of their hearts, were used by God to discipline His people. Mark Dever writes, God is not indifferent to His people's sin. He acts against their sin for the sake of His name. This is good news. God will oppose us when we pursue destruction. And when Israel couldn't bear the oppression any longer, they would cry out to the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 9. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Now, this crying out doesn't necessarily indicate repentance. The Hebrew verb that's used here in itself is only an expression of pain, not a sorrow for sin. This is, this is the cry of distress, not of repentance. This is, this is asking God to remove the hurtful circumstances, not pleading with Him to cleanse the heart. In fact, I put in your notes that Israel cries out with, sometimes in parentheses, because there are occasions in the book of Judges when even this isn't present. When they're not even looking to the Lord to remove the pain. And yet in these situations, God is just merciful. He is, as 2.18 says, moved to pity by their groaning. He could bear Israel's suffering no longer, chapter 10, verse 16. And so the Lord would save His people by raising up a judge to protect them. In verse 18 of chapter 2, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and He saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. A very interesting Christian figure from the World War II era was a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a, a Lutheran pastor in Germany who was arrested and executed because of his plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. And a recent biography of his is, is subtitled, Pastor, Martyr, Prophet, Spy. And that's an interesting combination of qualities, isn't it? And in a similar way, the, the, the judges played a variety of roles in Israel. They 
They were military leaders, charismatic figures. Some were prophets, spiritual reformers, tribal rulers. Some, like Samson, are hard to classify other than he was a, a strong and arrogant dude who was a pest to the Philistines. But whatever the need in Israel, God would equip a judge for the task. And, and while it's, it's right to note, as we're going to do in, in a moment, the, the moral failures of the judges, we should not let that obscure the fact that the, the raising up of the judge was God's doing. They were God's gracious provision. So this book rightly celebrates the ability of the judges to rescue the people from their enemies, and we should too. Whether that's Samson killing thousands with the jawbone of a donkey or Ehud, the left-handed assassin, thrusting his sword into the belly of Eglon or Gideon and his army of 300 fighting against Midian or Jael driving a tent peg into the head of Sisera. God is here saving His people. That's what's happening here. That's what this is about. He is rescuing them out of their need. And so Hebrews 11, the, the great hall of faith, says, And what more shall we say? For time would fail to tell of Gideon, Barak. So he's just listing judges. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. These are the great things that the Lord accomplished through them. And we should note that in these accounts, the success of the judges is due entirely to the fact that the Spirit of the Lord came upon them. The Spirit of the Lord was upon Othniel. And he judged Israel. The Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. The Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson. This is God's doing. You see God the Savior here. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And after the judge rescued the people, there might be a generation that serves the Lord. There might be a time of reform and a period of peace. But when the judge died, the people soon forgot God. And the cycle starts all over again. And what we need to see is that this cycle is not neutral. It's not just the same thing happening again and again. This cycle is a downward spiral. At every turn, Israel gets worse. The final five chapters of the book have a pronounced emphasis on the depravity of the people. The author wants us to see that everything is upside down. It's like Israel has lost any sense of moral reflexes. They, they live in this realm of 
total confusion because of their idolatrous pursuits. And Dale Roth Davis explains this shift from chapter 16 to 17 in this way. He says, immediately you sense the difference. It's like walking on pavement and then suddenly you realize you are crunching along, along on gravel. Even if you didn't see where the pavement stopped and the gravel began, your feet tell you. You simply know these last five chapters are different. There's no refrain of Israel's apostasy, no announcing of a new oppression, no central judge figure. The writer changes his style in order to portray the confusion of a depraved people. Two main stories are, are told in these, these final chapters, and we'll, we'll look at them briefly. Turn to Judges 17. This account would be comical if it weren't so sad. Verse 1. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, and this is a really strange response, blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son. This is how she honors the Lord, to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. It was in the house of Micah, and the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod in household gods. And he ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So this man, Micah, steals silver from his mother, and then he returns it back to her. And for some, for some reason, she views that as a good thing, and, and she commissions a silversmith to, to form the silver into idols that uh, Micah can add to his home collection. And Micah, whose name ironically means, who is there like the Lord, apparently thinks that his trophies are like the Lord, and he starts up his own religious outpost and conveniently ordains his son as priest. Now the story could end there, and we, we would already see how, how twisted this is, but Micah happens upon a genuine Levite who agrees to come and, and live with him, I guess, to kind of certify his whole operation. And Micah views this as proof of divine blessing. Look at verse 13. Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest. I mean, what further proof do you need? doesn't matter that you're blatantly disobeying the Ten Commandments. doesn't matter that you have total disregard of God and His law. You have a Levite. So God is obviously supporting you in your idolatrous pursuits. And all this is happening, the author says in chapter 18, verse 31, while the house of God was at Shiloh, 
not to be found at Micah's God's Are Us operation. Well, it turns out that this Levite happens to be an old friend of a group of Danites who are passing by. And they say, hey, why don't you come work for us? How, how much is that Micah paying you? We'll, we'll double your pay. Come with us. And, and along the way, they, they plunder Micah's goods and, and take all of his idols with him. Micah throws a fit about this. And uh, this, this is all introduced in chapter 18, by the way, with that familiar refrain. 18 verse 1, in those days there was no king in Israel. And so after Micah's gods have been stolen, he says in verse 24, You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away and what have I left? And apparently Micah is unaware of the irony in his words because a god that can be made and taken is no god at all. And, and the double irony is this was the silver that Micah took from his mom, and now it's being taken from him, and somehow he's upset about that. Well, in celebration of their newly acquired religious relics, the Danites to go, decide to go on a murderous rampage. And they plunder the nearby town, the helpless town of Laish. Look at verse 27, chapter 18. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made. Note the author refuses to call them gods. He just refers to them as what Micah had made. And the priest who belonged to him, they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them down with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. You see, this is what idolatry leads to. This is what Paul's talking about in Romans 1 when he, he says about idolaters that God gave them over to the cravings of their own hearts. Well, Judges 19 very much resembles Genesis 19, which is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. But here it is God's people who are involved chapter begins with a familiar statement. Verse 1, in those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his, this Levite and his concubine pass through Gibeah and Benjamin, and they stay the night, they, they sleep in the, in the town square because no one would, would offer them room. And, and this old man from Ephraim says, no, don't sleep in the town square. This, this right, right here, Genesis 19 is shouting at, at us. If, if you read that, that account, that there are so many parallels to that. He says, come and stay in my home. And they are enjoying a quiet dinner there. And the men of the city come out, begin to bang on the door and hurl themselves against the house, saying in verse 22, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the Levite, courageous and chivalrous man that he is, sends out his concubine to face them. Look at verse 25. But the men would not listen to him, so the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. 
And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. Not supposed to feel comfortable reading that. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey. The man rose and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife. And taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. And this ends up sparking a civil war in Israel as the other 11 tribes go out and they attack the tribe of, of Benjamin in response to this. And just the end of the book is just the remaining devastation of this story. It's terribly sad. Now, what are we supposed to take from this? I think we're supposed to notice not only the utter depravity of the people of Israel, but that the ministry of the judges was unable to prevent something like this from happening. They were imperfect saviors. They weren't able to affect any real change in the people. They, they couldn't fix sinners because they themselves were sinners. David Howard writes, in general, the book does not describe the judges as leading Israel in true repentance and in putting away foreign gods. The one judge who did the most along this line, Gideon, did so only at the beginning of his ministry. By the end, he was leading the people in exactly the opposite direction. Do you feel the darkness in your own soul? Do you feel your brokenness? Something that no human can fix. It's very easy to read Judges 19 with horror and fail to see ourselves in it. We are in this book. Our pride and idolatry and self-worship and deceit and indifference. We need a Savior. Someone who is able to save. Arrogant Samson and unfaithful Gideon and ignorant Jephthah won't cut it. 
This book ends by telling us that in those days, there was no king to be found in the land. But this period of the judges does not come to an end without quiet hope. Switch over to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth opens by saying that in the days when the judges ruled, and you see how it's helpful to know Old Testament history, the periods of things, to know Matt's OT Hokey song, because you know where we're at. You know the backdrop. Uh, you know what's being conveyed when the author says, this is happening, by the way, during the time of the judges. And there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem sojourned to Moab with his wife, Naomi, uh, and, and his sons. They, they take Moabite wives. One of them is named Ruth. And the men of the family die. And so Naomi and Ruth travel back to, to Israel to start a new life there. And in, in a wonderful story of redemption that we just don't have time to, to look at in, in detail, but you're probably, probably familiar with, with this story. Ruth ends up marrying a man named Boaz. And, and here's how the book ends. Ruth chapter 4. Look at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So in all of the tumult and the depravity and the confusion of the time of the judges, quietly in Bethlehem, the grandfather of David is born. And we know that David would go on to be the great king in Israel, the king after the Lord's heart. And so our author has his king. But we know that the line doesn't end there, does it? This is how the, this is how the New Testament opens. Matthew 1.1, 1, 1. the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, goes on to say, For unto you is born this day in Bethlehem, the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save. Here's the perfect Savior. He shall save his people from their sins. 
and of David's offspring. God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. God's promise is true. He hasn't stopped redeeming His people. The perfect Savior has come. The true King has come. Let's embrace Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the mirror that the book of Judges is for us, Lord, that we can look into it and we can see what is deep inside our own hearts. It's all too familiar. Lord, we know our own idolatry. We know our own tendency to turn from You. We know our own inclination to be unfaithful. But God, thank You that You never stop saving sinners like us. Thank You that You are true and that You have sent the final judge, the final king, the final redeemer, Jesus Christ, whom we know and cherish. Lord, may we cling to Him with all our hope for all our days. We pray in His name. Amen. See you next week.